Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Do you ever hear people talk about Catholic guilt? I'm always fascinated when this comes up because I do and I don't get it. We're going to talk about that a little later on. If you've experienced Catholic guilt, quote, Catholic guilt, uh, maybe you know someone who has said they're a recovering Catholic and you're wondering what exactly that means, or you've experienced it and you want to move past it. Uh, we will talk about that later on trending within the conversation of shame. Is shame good or is shame bad? What is the role of shame in our lives? If it's something we experience, uh, could it be a good thing? I'll talk about that a little later on and tie that into the whole conversation of Catholic guilt and even how we handle how we dress and sexuality and all of those elements of our lives. I think it's really important to talk about shame in a culture that really has struggled to address the proper role of shame in the culture. We hear a lot of people today say, you know, I don't want anyone or I don't want my child to have body shame. I don't think that you should shame people. I don't agree with shaming people, but I do think that shame is a good thing. What role does that play? We'll talk about that a little later on. Joining me Today on Trending is Casey Chalk. Casey Chalk is an author and a writer for numerous online publications. His latest book has come out. You've got to check it out, The Obscurity of Scripture. We'll post a link on social media as well as in the episode notes to his new book. Again, that's The Obscurity of Scripture. Today, I want to talk about mansplaining and so-called toxic masculinity and how this has impacted men. You hear a lot of people talk about mansplaining today where The whole idea, if you don't know what mansplaining is, don't worry. Casey will tell us in just a moment if you're not aware. Uh, But also this idea that fundamentally to be a man is toxic. And I really just have to beg the question. And gentlemen, maybe you have a thought you'd like to share on this topic. How has the constant berating of the culture, referring to men as bad, men as being mansplainers, as being toxic, as being, you know, what's wrong with the world, how does that eventually impact your pursuits and your psyche? Or does it? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Numbers 1-888-914-9149, or you can also share them on social media. Joining me now, without further ado, is Casey Chalk to talk about the impact of mansplaining and toxic masculinity as if these are the most sinful things that could occur today uh, from the perspective of men. Casey, welcome back to Trending. Hey, Tim Marie. Thanks so much for having me on again. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's interesting. I was reading one of your articles recently about toxic, mentioning toxic masculinity and mansplaining and how in the woke culture we live in, kind of some of the primordial sins that you could commit against another human being include mansplaining and being a toxic man. And I found it so fascinating because I think it creates a lot of confusion about what is right and what is wrong behavior for men. And I want to talk to you about it. Like, how does that impact the pursuits that men may engage in? Yeah, so <clears throat> the reason I wrote that article was because when I was reading um, some you know secular media recently and, and hearing about mansplaining and toxic masculinity, suddenly dawned upon me that 
these were sins, these are sins um, in our secular woke age that are committed primarily, if not exclusively, by, you know, one sex. And I thought, gosh, that's so interesting and, and such kind of a perversion of the understanding of sin from a classical Christian and Catholic perspective. Um, but like you said, so mansplaining, uh, it's, it actually has a definition in Merriam-Webster, and uh, it is to explain something to a woman in a condescending way that assumes she has no knowledge about the topic. And Macmillan Dictionary very explicitly says that it's when a man mansplains something, he explains it to someone, usually a woman, in a way that shows that he believes he knows more about it than she does uh, just because he is a man, right? So there's a very specific emphasis on men being the perpetrators of this sin. And kind of, yeah, getting to your question, um, I think this does have a really detrimental impact on how men view themselves and how men are basically told to uh, to interact with people in the public mm -hmm. square. There's just a presumption that men are capable of doing these unique sins, which the other sex is incapable of doing it. So it creates kind of like this automatic... Um, power imbalance in relationships where a woman, and I've, and I've seen it at work. I've, I've heard women, thankfully, no woman has ever accused me of this, but I've heard lots of other women complain about how men will be mansplaining to them. And I don't really know what to make of it when these, when these stories are told to me. I mean, I think maybe in the previous generation, we would just call men who do that kind of thing, maybe we would call them socially inept. <laughs> or, <laughs> or maybe, lecturers, right? Right. <laughs> One of right, the teachers, or, the wrong profession. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah, maybe they're being arrogant or whatever. But now, now, of course, we need to have this new, um, this new kind of sin, which is, uh, yeah, like, it's like I said, it's just a real perversion of the classical Catholic understanding of sin, where basically, look at the Ten Commandments, all of those sins are, uh, are agnostic when it comes to who can perpetrate them. It's there's no, there's no sins that are just done by men or women or white people, black people, Latinos or whatever, right? There, there are things that all of us just by virtue of being fallen a human uh yeah sin sinful humans that we're all capable of committing you know and it's interesting because i think that we live at a time where this whole idea of constantly discussing mansplaining and toxic masculinity really is impacting men because you talked about it as if this is like the sin of the culture but it really pulls away the away from addressing what is real sin what is actually problematic in a man's life and i think that because of the culture you know the media optics focus so often on this is the worst thing you can do as a man mansplain or be a male that is because masculinity has been labeled as toxic that when there are real problems going on in a man's life he's actually not addressing them because all these other things are being addressed as a problem first yeah i think that is a really good point that there's sort of um there's a bit of a disconnect in our culture between what 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 the real vices are within a man's life, right? So now men, to a large degree, kind of get a pass on some of the things which, which are really very damaging to him, right? So I think lust would probably be at the top of the list in terms of pornography and other kinds of sins that men commit. A lot of that is actually kind of encouraged by the broader culture and even from the feminist culture oftentimes is, you know, is, willing, is willing to accept, if not promote, that kind of behavior. But um, yeah, but far beyond just sexual sin, I mean, even like, you know, men that spend a lot of their day doing video games mm -hmm. on social media, all that kind of thing, that's, that's all acceptable behavior, even though it is far more damaging than being, uh, being you know, engaging in uh, toxic masculine behavior. Isn't that so interesting that today, I think that the culture would rather see men playing video games 
uh, not be pursuing a responsible career that makes them marriage material. Uh, the culture would rather see men almost floundering rather than succeeding. And at this, and they think that's better because then that means women are getting ahead and uh, hopefully they're not mansplaining in the meantime. Yeah, I think that's, that's uh, and I think, a very relevant point because a lot of what gets billed as toxic masculinity is really just men trying to find appropriate outlets for testosterone um, and very na very natural desires. Um, certainly there's an athletic component to that, but there's also just an aggression component to it. And certainly, like, look, I think that toxic masculinity, it does point to something that, which is a, a reality, which is, I mean, I've known guys in my life who can be real jerks and their aggression is constantly up at uh, 10 out of 10 and, uh, and it's, it can be very difficult to be with them. But again, we've, we've always understood that those are behaviors that are not acceptable um, in, uh, you know, in the, in the public square, in, in, in social relationships that people right. are, men are not supposed to be like that, but right. now it's I more just toxic men Sorry, and toxic women, right? Casey, like <laughs> there are men who do mansplain, but there are women who womansplain. I mean, who, who even says that that would be, we would laugh if someone were to say womansplaining. There are people who just kind of like to lecture and talk a lot, right? And that's something that just occurs. And sometimes maybe we can even just suffer a little bit more of uh, an obnoxious individual rather than sitting here labeling it or objectifying or complaining about it all the time. But you mentioned it testosterone and kind of the important role of testosterone and how people are pointing to activities surrounding testosterone and saying that that's problematic. But even you mentioned, for example, aggression, you know, the American Psychological Association back in 2018 or 19 labeled masculinity as toxic, and they included aggression as being one of those things that were considered toxic. And I'm not sure if you and I have talked about this before, but aggression is a good thing. I mean, you can aggressively chase after a goal. You can aggressively fight to protect someone. Uh, aggression doesn't just mean fighting in a negative combative sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's been a lot of great literature that has been written about this um, over the years from a, from a Catholic and Christian perspective, this idea that, like you said, Tim Marie, that we can be aggressive in the pursuit of the virtues, um, but we also, we want men to be aggressive when they're pursuing goods that are noble and benefit, you know, benefit society, benefit the church. And certainly, you know, as a, as a patriot and someone who has served overseas in war zones. I want my military to be very aggressive. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think that in a lot of ways, the, the the discouraging of aggressive behavior has really negative detrimental impacts. But I think what what you said also, Timory, is correct that I think it reflects an, an, a deeper antipathy towards the patriarchy from sort of a, a misunderstanding from a lot of feminists that, ver that very much view that men in power must, that always must be a dangerous and negative thing. And therefore, you know, if there's if there's strong men who are in positions of power, they need to be unseated and taken down, and uh, and yeah, and put, and put in their place so that women can ascend. And yeah, I think that it's a, it's a very hyper competitive and, and ultimately kind of disastrous way of understanding relationships between the sexes. I think patriarchy is great. I think we should have more men who are patriarchs because that means men who are leading and leading sacrificially and lovingly. Yet, you know, no one can actually define what patriarchy is. I still laugh about this. I went to the one of the big women's marches a couple of years ago and was interviewing people. And I went around asking woman after woman after woman, what is patriarchy? 
no one could answer. And it was so funny because some of the team that I had with me, my, I guess you could say bodyguards, because no one wanted me to go alone, especially seven months pregnant to the Women's March. Uh, even the guys who were there kind of, you know, keeping watch to make sure I was safe were like, I didn't even know what patriarchy meant. You kept asking that question. You weren't defining it. And you were just letting everyone else. And they, they were saying the whole day I kept thinking, what does patriarchy mean? So tell me, what does it mean? And it means to be a male leader. But isn't that sad that even today men don't know what patriarchy means? And so they go along as women in the media predominantly says that mansplaining is wrong and toxic masculinity is just who men are and then patriarchy is horrible well men are sitting here floundering saying well to be a man is bad and so that really makes me ask the question Casey how do you think this has impacted just the psychological well-being overall of men yeah I was thinking about that and I think that there are two extremes that this leads to in, in men in America. I think one extreme is that men actually believe what they're told and that you know toxic masculinity and mansplaining are, are these great evils that they need to avoid at all costs. So it kind of undermines their natural God-given uh, tendencies towards aggression and finding good outlets for testosterone. And they end up more or less becoming more and more like, like women, which is not what God intended for them. I think the other alternative is that men perceiving that this is a threat to them and, and who they are as men biologically, um, then start to go way far in the other extreme, right? And they become obsessed with their bodies and finding ways to exert aggression and influence, right? And they're posting pictures on social media about working out or shooting guns and all the rest of this stuff, which is all sort of, you know, exhibitionist and ridiculous as well. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it, in whenever, whatever form it's taking the discussion of toxic masculinity and mansplaining, um, really kind of takes men away from that great golden mean, which St. Thomas and Aristotle talk about, where we're supposed to orient our aggression and our testosterone and all these other characteristics that men have biologically towards good, beautiful ends that will bless um, certainly ourselves, but but you know our families, the church, and society writ large. It ends um, with integrity, right? Like ends that really show like this is good. You know, we mistake, you mentioned how a lot of men today, how this has impacted men psychologically is to pursue an overabundance and strength, right? Because they think if I am strong, that will really make me a man. And don't get me wrong. I think a lot more men, you know, need to be able to provide physically and fight physically and protect. But I think that there's that misguided understanding when strength equals masculinity because strength is both physical, but it's also spiritual and moral as well. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's a lot of ridiculous examples of this. I mean, just like shooting a gun (laughs) at a gun Hmm. range does not make, does not make you masculine, right? It's knowing how to use it properly for good ends, which typically is not, you know, trying to brag about it on social media. But I think this conversation is actually is super relevant to what's going on in our culture politically. I actually just read last weekend, a book by um, Senator Josh Hawley. And I think it's just coming out. I think it'll be available for public purchase next week called Manhood. And it's based on some um, speeches he's done in a bunch of different venues where he talks exactly about this, Timory. It's so relevant to what what you're discussing in terms of the patriarchy actually being men um, leading by serving and sacrificing. Because I was kind of, you know, I was sort of expecting, you know, because he is a politician, it to be sort of inflammatory, but it really, it was very biblical and, and very focused on this idea that men actually demonstrate their, um, their natural, you know, ag- aggressive tendencies or desire for leadership or to be excellent by doing sacrificial things where they're giving up and, and serving, uh, 
you know, their families and their communities. And yeah, it was, it was very beautiful. And I think uh, I have very, very much recommend that book uh, to your listeners because I think uh, Josh Hawley's got a pretty good pulse on what it means to be a true mm. godly man. Fascinated. I can't wait to read it. And Josh Hawley has been really passionate in speaking up, especially on really fundamental issues that impact children, impact families, impact, you know, just our ability to pursue uh, family life and pursue religion. So I'll be fascinated to read it. We'll post a link on social media. I know that's forthcoming. You know, I do want to touch on kind of an interesting story that I'd love to kind of run by you as we're talking about how this whole idea of mansplaining and toxic masculinity really does impact men and what they think about it. How do you think this has impacted men's pursuits as well? You mentioned how it's impacted their psyche, but do you think this has stymied men? Do you think it's inspired men? What was has the reaction been? I think it's the same thing with the extremes. I think some men have been discouraged from pursuing a lot of the kinds of things that they would have done in previous generations in, ter in terms of looking for activities where they would find natural, good, productive um, outlets for, you know, for these, for, for their, yeah, for aggression and testosterone and all the, and all the rest of these biological components that they have. Um, so, uh, yeah. And so again, I think you see a lot of men kind of going into themselves because they're afraid to sort of show themselves, show themselves as they truly are in the culture because they're afraid that they're going to be condemned, uh, you know, for these woke sins or whatnot. But yeah, I, I think alternatively, you do see a lot of men going really far on the other extreme. Um, I think one place where I see this the most is actually the way that men interact on social media. Interesting. Um, social media is, um, I think it can be a good, it, you know, I certainly promote my writing on social media, but it is, uh, it's a place of, of such sort of like wicked ways of communicating where the, so much of the goal is really just to try and like own the other side. And um, uh, it, it's, just, it's just really mean spirited. Um, and I and I and I see it from both sides. I see it from non-Catholics and Catholics, liberals and conservatives, everybody. Um, and I think men in our in the 21st century are sort of like going to social media as an outlet for their testosterone and aggression, which is very sad to me because it's mm. it's it's such like a it's a fake world. It's a fake reality. <laughs> Let's see how many wrestling videos I can watch. Let's see how many you know, NASCAR races I can watch. And I think women and men are turning to social media to feed fixes of things that uh, draw them and inspire them. Yet fundamentally, unfortunately, I think often that inspiration is just staying at the point of algorithms that lead you to watch one more video of similar content. And I think that's what's frustrating. You know, I want to run a story by you. It was interesting. About mm, four or five years ago, I remember I had just come out of mass with my husband. And I'm, my sister was with us as well. And we're walking around the church headed toward the car. And all of a sudden, my husband's completely missing. And he's not one to just, you know, kind of like, so for us to all lose each other. And so we're walking around the church trying to find him. Thinking, what on earth happened? Did he find someone? Did someone call his name? And I come around and he's wrapping up a conversation uh, with a younger, you know, 20 something year old man, younger 20s. And I was flabbergasted. This was one of those moments where I think this whole idea of toxic masculinity, the rubber really met the road here because this young man approached my husband and he got mad at my husband and was emotional and even started crying a little bit. And Grant, clearly there was something going on that upset him. Uh, but he got mad at my husband because my husband, he saw, had a knife in his pocket at mass. You know, a 
pocket knife a lot of people carry. And the knife side wasn't even exposed. It was just a clip. And for all you know, unless you were really paying attention and like looking to the outline of what was inside his pants, it could have been a wallet clip, a money clip, any number of things. But this man really took offense to the fact that one, he was wearing a knife and two, that he would wear it to church, to mass. And I know there's some people who are going to totally disagree with this, that the fact that he was wearing it at the time. Uh, but I thought that that was so odd. And the man said, you know, it's really triggering for me and it's upsetting. You should not wear that. It's a violent thing to have at church. And in my mind, I'm thinking, no, this is something good to have with you to protect, you know, other individuals if something were to happen or even just a simple tool most of the time, maybe used to help open a can or cut something when necessary. And it was so startling to me to see that weapons have become such a toxic thing for men and in the culture that even a simple pocket knife that many nine-year-old little boys even carry around has become such a point of contention, yet when it used to be a tool of utility and protection. I think a lot of that reflects the fact that um, a lot of the, a lot of the ways that boys and men used to relate to weapons was much more as tools rather than as things that you show off on social media as a way to kind of like uh, show have credentials to your own masculinity, mm. you know? So like, for example, like Boy Scouts, uh, Boy Scouts of America, the, the membership has gone way down. And some of that for good reason, because of a lot of the internal crises and controversies in that organization, but it hasn't been replaced by anything. So, you know, in, when, uh, when I was a kid, when my, when my dad was a kid going through Boy Scouts, you just learn that, yeah, knives are tools and they're really effective and they serve all these different purposes. I'm kind of surprised that someone would be upset about a knife because <laughs> in <clears throat> in the kind of active shooter scenarios, which unfortunately, very right. sadly, even happen at churches, a knife is not really yeah. going to do you very much good um, unless you're really up close with the shooter. Um, but in the same goes for guns too, right? Like it wasn't that long ago that large numbers of American boys and men hunted every fall, right? Hunting right. season. There's certain parts of the country that are still like this in rural areas. And so then it's not, guns are no longer so much about a thing that you kind of use to show off and prove yourself as a man, but more just, yeah, I mean, if you want to get a deer this season, you're going to have to have a 308 or a 30-odd six, and that's just the way it is. Um, so I think that it just reflects the fact that most most young men are spending their, their free time in front of screens and not out in nature using weapons as tools the way that we have for, you know, generations and centuries prior. I think we need to bring back the hunt. You know, it's interesting, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who I'm a huge fan of, a regular guest here on Trending, uh, he just actually released a book on hunting and how important hunting is. It's really fascinating. I just started to read it. So I'll post a link to that as well, because I think that ties into this whole conversation of how fundamental hunting and provisions and, you know, being those foragers are. And in a certain respect, even if we're not foraging for our food the way we did before or hunting and gathering it, that some of these things help to bring balance to the conversation of weapons and masculinity and even just building character. Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations on your new book. If you haven't picked it up, be sure to pick it up. It's The Obscurity of Scripture by Casey Chalk. We posted a link on social media as well as in the episode notes for today's show. I'll be right back here on Trending Today to talk about shame and the important role it plays in our lives. You hear a lot of people saying, oh, don't shame, or I would never want my child to experience any type of body shame. We'll talk about the role of shame in our lives, even touching on the tie-in to so-called Catholic guilt when people say they're recovering Catholics and still trying to shirk that Catholic guilt. If you have a question, number is 1-888-914-9149.
You're listening to Trending with Timry, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Oh, the conversations that we have behind the scenes. You have no idea. One of these days, we're going to get in trouble. The mic's going to be hot. So if you don't know in radio world, if your mic's hot, that means that anything you're saying is going over the air. I actually had that happen one time where it was a break and... My mic got left on and the commercials were playing, but I was having a conversation with my producer and our entire conversation was going over the air. And one of the engineers came running and saying, her mic is hot, her mic is hot. So it sounded like I was having a one-sided conversation because the people on the other side could not hear uh, what my producer was saying and just me sort of babbling. Luckily, it was nothing significant. My current producer is saying that was not me, just to be very clear. And it was not. It was not my current producer. Jim, you have never done me dirty and left my mic on. But that's a good lesson of culpability, uh, especially working in radio, that you always are supposed to have this mindset that your mic is always on. So if you're standing in front of a mic, you shouldn't say something inappropriate or that you wouldn't want to be heard. But on that note, it kind of ties into the whole Catholic understanding in general. We really shouldn't be saying things that we wouldn't want other people to hear us saying. So, that's a lesson in just accountability in general. I want to talk today about shame and the role of shame in our lives. It's such an important conversation. And by the way, if you have a question today, any question, whether it's about abortion, uh, gender, being Catholic, challenges in the culture, I'm happy to take it. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. So here's a conversation I want to have about shame. It's always interesting kind of diving into this topic because shame is something that directly impacts our ability to love and be loved. It fundamentally has to do with how in many ways we perceive ourselves being taken out toward others and how we perceive others as well. It's interesting because if you actually talk about shame, men and women experience shame in a radically different way. Men often feel shame, and men and women often feel shame surrounding the body and sexuality, but it's not the only area we experience shame. And I'll talk about that more as we go on, but I kind of want to use that as our starting point because I think it's significant. So men, biological men, because apparently we have to be clear about this in 2023, believe it or not, there is such a difference and we should always stick with that. Uh, But biological men often feel shame with regard to their reaction physically and mentally toward women. So in other words, men often feel shame and even guilt. I think the two are directly connected and really uh, in some ways are interchangeable. Uh, But men often feel shame with regard to their reaction to the physicality of a woman and mentally how they respond both in body and their mental state to a woman, to a woman's beauty in particular. So on one side, it's a good thing that beauty can inspire men. uh, But on the other side, it can also be a sticking point of tremendous shame. Uh, We could take this in many directions, whether it's tied to pornography, which by the way, we're going to talk about pornography tomorrow, and whether or not you can be addicted to pornography and how to stop looking at it if you are. 
Uh, many men experience tremendous shame with regard to even looking at pornography. They wouldn't want anyone to know. And even as men or women look, they want they can may continue to look and still feel that shame, especially with the rise of women looking at pornography today. I think in some respects, the shame is even worse for women because women are not as physically oriented or aroused as men are. And so that guilt can be even more significant often for women because it's such a disorientation. And when you talk about dopamine levels and how once you start looking at pornography frequently, that it leads you to look at more pornography and different types and more intense pornography. And that's just the way it works. You know, those those receptors in our brain, that dopamine release, it gives you a sense of pleasure and euphoria and some of the other chemicals that are released like serotonin and oxytocin. Tocin, uh, those things really give you a sense of serenity, enjoyment. But what's in conflict is how can something that feels so good be so bad? And I think a lot of women, especially, have that deeper sense of culpability with regard to uh, physical objectification because it's not something that we as commonly do. We objectify, but objectify in different ways. We usually objectify more so on the level of sentimentality and the emotions, not as much on the sexual dimension. So when we talk about again about our original kind of topic here is that men often feel shame with regard to their reaction physically and mentally toward women. In contrast, women more often feel shame regarding being objectified. And this often touches into the areas such as uh, having given away too much of herself. And that isn't just necessarily uh, sexually, it could be in how she dressed, but also in sharing verbally too much about herself too soon, before the appropriate moment. And this in many ways touches on the fundamental element of mystery and how important the mystery of the human person is. I think one of the most challenging things for many people when it comes to faith, faith in God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has to do with the fact that the Trinity is a mystery. It's not something we can fully understand here on earth. And that's frustrating for many people. It requires a profound act of humility. Well, in many respects, that has to do with the human body as well, especially the woman's body. There's a sense of mystery about the body. And so for women, shame doesn't happen so much when a woman is looking out toward another human being, but more so shame happens sexually when the woman's looking at how other people are looking at her and she feels a sense of a need to be concealed or unseen sometimes. And I think this is a really important conversation to have in the face of the transgender crisis because many women, young teenagers who I have spoken to over the last five years in particular, when they've come to me saying, listen, I don't think I'm transgender, but I'm struggling with my identity as a girl. With this idea of being a woman, I don't want to be a woman. I don't like the idea of being a woman. I don't want to do woman or feminine or girly things. I don't want to dress like one. I think that when young teenage girls, girls going through puberty, girls whose bodies are changing, start to experience a sense of shame, it's because they're starting to see that they can be viewed as a sexual object. They reject that. They also are seeing that they themselves, just the way their body's changing, isn't just being objectified, um, but it can be used. And to go from the innocence of a child who 
delights in another and loves to be delighted in, and then to the, go to the point where suddenly that delight of childhood that a child elicits in another human being suddenly turns to a point obje- of objectification. Think about how that can rock a young girl's world. And that's when shame starts to enter in. Not necessarily because she's done anything wrong. I mean, it can be because you dress immodestly or whatever, but often that shame just naturally starts to flow in when suddenly you go from that experience of childhood of being delighted in to the experience of maturing and the body transforming to being potentially objectified and used either physically by another or even used in the thoughts of another human being. And I think today girls have a keen sense of the reality of pornography. It's no surprise many girls suddenly are experiencing this sudden uh, transgender, sudden gender confusion, dysphoric onset. It's not that they're confused about their sexuality. It's not that they're confused about whether or not they're male or female. They're scared. They're rejecting it. They do not like the way the culture has allowed for the objectification of women, and not even just on the level of sexuality, but even on the level of how women are used so intensely, even in the workforce, the pressure for women to be in the workforce, the pressure for women to compete at the same level, or even more so that women are supposed to compete better than men today. I don't know a single man that in some way doesn't experience that, that pressure in many ways. And so, again, coming back to this idea, there's really this misguided view today of real crises in the culture, such as having to do with pornography or the transgender crisis that really isn't a transgender crisis, but it's a matter of this natural sense of shame and the transition of the body. There's nothing wrong with a young girl or a young boy starting to understand his or her body differently as maturity starts to occur. Shame is a good thing. It's good if a young boy feels a sense of guilt and shame over objectifying another human being. And it's a good thing if a young girl feels a sense of shame in terms of how she can be perceived by another human being and that inspires clothing that respects and honors and adores the body. Not hides it, but respects, honors, and adores the body. I think a lot of conversation needs to be had surrounding modesty because there's a push in this culture to act as if the body is bad. There's also a push to act as if the body is the greatest thing out there and ignore the fact that we have a human soul that can indeed feel shame. I remember some years ago, I was giving a talk on modesty at a church and I have always hated, I really have always hated talking about modesty because I think you've had two extremes, the hide everything and flaunt everything in our culture and that no one should feel guilty for flaunting and that on the other end of the spectrum, you should hide and conceal everything. But again, we need to adorn, respect, and honor the body. But what was interesting when I gave that talk on modesty, I remember that there was a parent there who came and approached me after the talk and she said, I didn't allow my daughter to come here today. Because I wanted to see what you were going to say about modesty. Because I didn't want my daughter to be body shamed by coming here. 
and she was very aggressive in what she had to say. And there were some points of contention in the conversation and the presentation I gave where she said, I liked this. I wasn't crazy about that. And I said, great. I said, you know, let's have a conversation about this because I'm open to working through this because I think that our beauty as women and how we present ourselves and how we dress is a really difficult issue that we need to bring out into the conversation day to day that we're willing to have with each other. And so all of this comes back to shame and its role in our lives. Again, kind of just to review, men often feel shame with regard to their reaction physically and mentally to women, whereas women more often feel shame regarding being objectified. That has to do with sharing too much of themselves, even just their personality and about themselves, or even in terms of their sexual interactions and even just flaunting their bodies with regard to how they dress. Now, body shame I think a lot of people in the modern day culture, just like that woman who approached me at that talk, in many ways, she was more so concerned that her daughter would feel body shame. And today, this is kind of, again, one of those sins that the culture says you absolutely cannot commit. You should never shame another person and their bodily appearance. I agree. We shouldn't be shaming other people. But when we feel shamed, on our own, that's an indicator that we should perhaps reevaluate how we're treating another human being or how we're allowing ourselves to be treated. For example, if you're sitting down, you're constantly pulling down your clothes, pulling down your skirt, your dress, that's usually a sign that you should wear something a little longer. If you're constantly pulling up your shirt, that's a sign you should wear something like a little higher in terms of the neckline. And I think that we go through different phases, especially as women, Oh, where that's more challenging. Uh, you know, I know right now I'm nursing a, a f- almost four month old and I have a two year old pulling on me. And so the clothing I wear today, I'm learning really has to be different from the clothing I wore even with one child versus others in terms of utility and just what can be pulled at and not make me feel completely exposed to other human beings. And that's a difficult transition. But that's also a conversation that people really don't have with regard to modesty, that it isn't that you're necessarily wearing something bad, but that it's just not functional and makes you feel as comfortable in front of others and can prevent you from feeling objectified. And therefore, this whole conversation of shame plays in. But the culture says that bodily shame is bad, that modesty is bad, even that discretion is bad. And the culture says humility is bad. We're supposed to be prideful. We're supposed to flaunt everything we have to say and think, and we're even supposed to flaunt our body. So in the culture's eyes, this whole conversation of shame is incredibly countercultural because the culture of the world today says to be shamed, but not just to be shamed, to feel shamed is bad. And again, we shouldn't be shaming other people, but we should take note when we ourselves experience shame. I was reading this book a couple years ago by a pro-LGBTQ, radical feminist, pro-abortion, pro-contraception, all of that. It was written by Bonnie Ruff, and the book's called Beyond the Birds and the Bees, Bringing Home a New Message to Our Kids About Sex, Love, and Equality. And in this book, it was really interesting because she had spent a handful of years uh, living this utopia uh, in Dutchland, right? She was embracing Dutch culture. And apparently, if you don't know this, Dutch culture uh, is a very 
nudist culture in many ways. They're very comfortable with the nude body. And it's interesting because this predates the dawn of pornography and how significant that has been over the last handful of years. Now it's become more sexualized nudity versus before there was more comfort in their nudity. Uh, But it was interesting because she shared a lot of stories about the Dutch people and stories of parenting and the familiarity with nakedness. And even she shares a story in the book uh, about a young man and how he was used to living at home with his parents in his young adult years. And it was normal uh, for some of his family members to be naked at time. And I just thought, you know, people may literally be okay uh, swinging that way, but that's just a no for me, dog. Like, no, thank you. But it does touch on something that she was addressing. She said that bodies are neither good nor bad. She said they just are. And I thought that was fascinating because I think it's wrong. Bodies, so she kind of claims that bodies are amoral, neither good or bad. That's actually not true because you are your body and your soul. A person and their body can't be separated here on earth. A person is his or her body and his or her soul. That's why you can't say, I'm stuck in a man's body, but I'm really, you know, feeling that my soul is female. There's no such thing. We are embodied human beings. And all the way down to the level of our soul, we are male or female. This is fundamentally what the Catholic Church teaches. And so a person is intrinsically good. Therefore, your body is intrinsically God, God, good. God created you in his image and likeness. And it's what you do with your body that is good or bad. Your body is good, but what you do with it is what can become problematic. So what does this have to do with shame? Well, I think that shame has to do with how we conceal our bodies and how we reveal our bodies. So I want to continue this conversation talking about shame because I think it's so important to get shame right, especially in forming and shaping the next generation, but also in talking to other people when someone might feel shame for a particular sin, when someone might feel shame and discomfort in their body and working through what is appropriate? What does that mean? What is coming forth in terms of how your conscience is reacting to your part in the world today? I'll be right back here on Trending with Tim Ray talking about shame. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back. We've been talking about shame and how important it is. The world says that shame is a bad thing today, that to be modesty is bad, to be discreet is bad, humility is bad. All of those go in direct contrast to uh, the Catholic understanding of the moral life. And I think we've really done ourselves a disservice when talking about shame. We've been diving into this topic over the last 20 minutes or so here in Trending. So if you want to dive a little deeper with me, be sure to head to relevantradio.com forward slash trending if you've missed the conversation. But we started with this premise that men often feel shame with regard to their reaction physically and mentally toward women. But women more often feel shame regarding being objectified by another. And it doesn't just have to do with sexuality on both sides. It has to do in many ways with how we love and respect other human beings. It's important to recognize that shame is pretty much always connected 
to a person. It's deeply personal. It's in response to another or regarding ourselves in respect to another human being. And I think because of this, anytime we feel shame, we really need to pause and ask, what's happening here? Why do I feel this way? What have I done to make myself feel that way toward another? Because shame is deeply personal. This is something that Pope St. John Paul II writes quite a bit about in his book, Love and Responsibility. And I think that in our modern culture, we really rejected shame. Uh, We lack an authentic personal connection with people through the use of so many connections via social media, even going to the beach. You know what you wear to the beach? You really don't know anyone there. You might want to be looked at or not want to be looked at, but there's not a personal connection. So even how we uh, feel and experience shame toward one another at the beach, it's very impersonal because we've depersonalized our connections with others. Even with video games, this is why I think people are so okay with pornography. And it's why I challenge myself even, you know, if I'm walking past someone to try and wave, say hello, or just nod my head or smile, that simple human connection to recognize there is someone else before me in a world where we are so disconnected from other human beings. And isn't it incredible that you could sit on an airplane for one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, six hours, or even longer, and never say hello or never make eye contact with the person next to you. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel deeply uncomfortable that we couldn't even just nod our heads, smile, or say hello. At the very least, realistically, we should probably try to get to know just a brief little bit about them. Even if it's very polite and simple conversation, I think we have that responsibility. Yet for some reason, there's not even shame for many of us today in sitting right next to someone and being so impersonal to not even make eye contact or nod or smile. And don't get me wrong, I have been that person sometimes who kind of wraps my head around just to say hello because I feel deeply uncomfortable sitting next to a stranger and not acknowledging their presence and that they're there. And I think it's odd if someone can actually not acknowledge that you're sitting right next to them as well, that I'm sitting right next to them. It's actually really interesting flying with a baby and seeing how people may try not to acknowledge your child. And I think some people think they might be a creeper if they acknowledge your child and talk and want to play with your child. And then I think other people really just don't want to acknowledge your child as well. They're probably thinking, who's this lady I got stuck sitting next to with a baby? (laughs) I get it. It's okay. But actually, sometimes those are the best flights when you're next to babies. I'm just saying. This is a little bit of a tangent. But as we're talking about shame and the role of shame, it is really interesting because this ties in, I think, in many ways to Catholic guilt. I remember when I first started to be introduced to this whole idea of Catholic guilt, I think I was more so a young adult. I had heard people say it, but I had never gotten it. And then I remember talking to one of my Pilates clients one day, and she realized after a few sessions I'd been working with her uh, that I was Catholic. She said, oh, you're one of those good Catholic girls. I said, well, I don't know about that. I try, but yes, I'm Catholic. And she said, oh, I'm a recovering Catholic. I'm still trying to shirk that Catholic guilt. This woman was in her mid to late 70s, and I found it fascinating that she had that negative view of Catholicism and that she was still trying to shake it all these years later because in a certain respect, she what she was missing was the fact that shame and guilt can and actually are a good thing. 
But when we don't form our consciences, or when we try to live the way the world says we should live, there's a direct contrast between the formation of the conscience and what the world says. And so, yes, obviously, there is going to be a sense of Catholic guilt if you have a formed conscience and you're ignoring that conscience that was formed. For some people, they've never even had their consciences formed to be told what is good and bad. The Ten Commandments are actually something that we can come to a conclusion naturally that those things are wrong and what should be done in the Ten Commandments, even honoring God keeping holy the Lord's day. I mean, these are things that we can actually come to naturally. We didn't need them to be revealed to us. But today we don't even ponder the Ten Commandments. Most people can't even name what the Ten Commandments are. And so when we talk about shame in correlation to Catholic guilt, it comes back to this fundamental understanding of love and responsibility. The responsibility we have for ourselves and toward others and the love we have for ourselves and toward others. Jesus Christ really presented this idea that That first commandment has to do with the love of neighbor and love of self. But isn't it interesting that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself, which implies that you can't give to others. You can't love others if you haven't first received that love. And this is why from an anthropological perspective, we fundamentally have to understand the great gift of our life from God. And if you don't have a Catholic faith or even any form of Christianity in your formation, you're going to have a hard time giving yourselves to others or even receiving from others. You're going to have a hard time when suddenly you feel a natural sense of shame when the world tells you to be loud, proud, reveal it all, verbally, emotionally, all your successes, everything to do with your body. And so we're living in a time where the natural human being and the natural development and the presence of the conscience that is there, even when not formed yet, is in direct contrast with the world. Praise God we are Catholic because that sense of shame and guilt that can occur is actually a mercy. It's a mercy because it's what helps us to be directed toward our need for God and the clemency of God, the forgiveness of God. In the important role that God hasn't left us, as he himself said, orphans. That is, we have to understand he hasn't abandoned us. He's even given us that sacrament of reconciliation, that we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled with God and reconciled with our neighbor with whom we've experienced shame and guilt. We have to remember that guilt is so fundamentally personal. And that it always relates to another human being or directly toward ourselves and how we viewed ourselves. And coming back to the sexual dimension of shame, I think it's important to recognize an essential feature of sexual shame is to cover sexual body parts that indicate whether we are male or female. And in a culture that says shame is important, we should flaunt it all, that pornography is okay. Again, there's no reason that we're struggling with whether or not we're male or female when we say the body doesn't matter. When we say shame doesn't matter, shame develops out of an interior need, an ability to be objectified, to be taken advantage of, an ability to objectify another, to take advantage of another. Shame always relates to a particular person, and it plays a really fundamental role in the identity crisis we experience today. As I shared earlier, I've spoken to many young women struggling in the discomfort of their bodies, not because, and they'll tell me, I don't think or believe I'm transgender. I just feel deeply uncomfortable in my own body. 
and the development of myself. And again, think about this. I said this earlier, and I hope you'll listen to the podcast if you weren't with us, relevantradio.com forward slash trending to catch all the episodes or wherever you listen to your podcast. But it's really challenging for a young person, for a young teenager, especially for girls, to go from the point of being delighted in by another human being to suddenly viewing themselves as an object that can be objectified by another. That is an identity crisis and a thing that we need to help navigate through to find peace and understand shame is a good thing, not a bad thing. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Coming up next is the Family Roser Across America with Patrick Madrid. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Wednesday, you do not want to miss the show because we're going to talk about how to stop looking at porn. It's a really important topic. Maybe you've struggled. Maybe you're addicted. Maybe you think looking at pornography cannot be an addiction. We'll talk about some of the science, the data, and real resources to overcome pornography addiction with Jim O'Day, the executive director of Integrity Restored. So join me daily at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.